may be seated. Amen. I wish Christians would argue more. That was the opening line to an article that I read earlier this year, a really helpful article by a Christian publisher and author by the name of Trevin Wax. He said, I wish Christians would argue more. I thought, really? Wow, that's an interesting way to start an article. But before you object to that statement, he clarified it by writing the following. I want Christians to argue more and fight less. Argue more and fight less. To take it a step further, I'd even say that fighting less depends on our willingness to argue more and better. To be clear, I don't say argue in the sense of being quarrelsome or irritable or just loving the fight of aggressive words. I use the word argue in its classic sense, the ability to make or counter an argument that depends on logic and reason. To meet one argument with another, to argue with someone respectfully toward the discovery of truth. The ability to argue well is the hallmark of a civil society, and it should be the goal of every thoughtful Christian. He's right. Being able to argue well and to do it with a genuine concern for others is one of the ways that we can, in the words of Paul, shine like stars in a crooked and perverse generation, holding fast the word of life. Today we're entering into the third chapter of the book of Romans, a place where the Apostle Paul is going to, first of all, employ a whole series of arguments, and secondly, deal with and refute a number of objections coming at him from his Jewish audience. Now, as you know already, Paul was a master of civil argumentation for one purpose, and that's to drive people to the gospel, to help them to see their need for the gospel. Now, in our study so far, I'll do a quick recap. We've we finished two chapters, which it took us six months, but that's good, right? We finished two chapters, and in those two chapters, Paul spoke to two very distinct communities. Remember, chapter one was mainly focused on the Gentile world, and it came with a heavy dose of theological truth and condemnation. You remember some of these things. Even though God had made himself known in creation, the Gentiles had failed to honor him or to give him thanks. They had grown futile in their thinking. Their hearts had grown dark. Professing to be wise, they became the exact opposite. They became fools, exchanging the glory of God for silly created things, worshiping false idols, exchanging the truth about God for lies. And therefore, the text says, God has given them over to their lusts and their impurities, and their bodies have been dishonored among each other by way of degrading passions and unnatural Functions. In summary, their thinking has become depraved, and as a result, their lives have become filled with darkness and wickedness. Paul did not hesitate at all in his description of the Gentile world in chapter 1. And as I've shared several times already in this series, the picture you get as you close chapter 1 is the Jews in his audience going, Amen, Paul, nodding their heads in agreement. Those filthy pagan Gentiles, yes, they need to turn to God. They need God. But before the Jews get too arrogant, Paul then turns both barrels of his theological shotgun towards them, towards the Jews. And he begins to systematically kick out from underneath them all the things that they've been trusting in apart from Christ. All of these things, their ethnic identity, their possession of the law, their knowledge of God's will, their calling as a light to the other nations, even circumcision, the one thing that they believe held them out, So distinct from the other nations, this covenant symbol of the promises given to Abraham. 
Paul wants to kick all of those things out from underneath them. Because they're trusting in those things rather than Christ. Why is he doing that? He does not want the Jews to have any assurance apart from Christ. He does not want them to believe that they can have a right standing before God in any of those things. So in order to really shake them up, he's got to get them to a point of despair. To see how lost they are. So that he can take away their sense of comfort and security and assurance. So that they will see their need for God's grace. And turn to Christ and be saved. And so as chapter 2 closes, it should be clear to everybody who's heard Paul, whether you were in his first century audience or you're here at Oak Hill in the 21st century, that all of humanity has fallen short of God's standard. And that all of humanity, both Jew and Gentile, are on equal footing when it comes to the blessing and the judgment of God. So now grab your Bibles, if you haven't gone there, and go to Romans 3, and let's start in verse 1. Those first two chapters, you guys, are an incredibly important foundation to understand the rest of the book. So let's, let me update you here with a, a screen so that you can see where we are in Paul's argument for the gospel. We've been working our way through what we call the first of six books within the book of Romans. This first book being known as the book of sin, which began in, really in, in chapter 1, verse 18, and runs all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. And over the next few weeks, we're going to finish up all of the hard truths that are in this book of sin. And then we're going to get to the the good news of the book of salvation that begins at verse 21 in chapter 3. Next Sunday, we're going to look at one of the most important passages in the entire book of Romans, and that's verses 9 to 18 in chapter 3. Really a foundational principle in the book of sin. And and I'll just go ahead and preview it for you, but some of you know these verses well. Nobody is righteous before God. How many? Not one. Nobody. And on top of that, nobody seeks after God on their own accord. Those are key principles for every Christian to understand if we're going to get the gospel right. If we don't start in the right place, we're going to end up in the wrong place. And so we want to make sure that we understand those key principles uh, for getting the gospel right. Now, before we get to that, before we get to verse 9 next week, which is a really important time, we've got to deal with these first eight verses here in chapter 3, our passage for this morning. Some scholars, by the way, uh, have looked at these eight verses in chapter 3. They believe these are the most difficult verses in the entire book of Romans, if you can imagine. And frankly, I'm going to give you some of my own opinion today. I don't think they belong in chapter 3. Because I really think they connect way more to what has just been described in chapter 2 than they do with what's to follow in chapter 3. And by the way, just as a historical side note, I feel like I should have some theme music, Grant, for Jeff's historical corner. Just as a a, a side note, historical corner, so to speak, here's a question that we should all be able to answer if it were ever to come up from somebody that you're sharing your faith with. Where did all these chapter divisions come from? Who made them? Obviously, they weren't written into the original text, right? When Paul... And we're going to find out in chapter 16 that he dictated the book of Romans to a scribe. When he dictated the book of Romans under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he didn't write it in a series of chapters. He just wrote it as one long-running letter. So who was it that decided that these verses this morning should begin in chapter 3? I want to talk to this person because I think they got it wrong. Well, historians tell us that these chapter visions were first put into the Latin Vulgate Bible by a, an English cardinal by the name of Langton back in the early 13th century. So that was the very first time that it was divided up into chapters, and I'm, I'm thankful for that. It does help us, right, in our understanding of the flow of the letter. 
And, and by the way, the verse numbers were added even hundreds of years after that by another Englishman, but this time a Protestant, a reformer by the name of Stephanus, who added the verse numbers to his Greek New Testament, and then it became so helpful that they, those same verse numbers were added to the very famous Geneva Bible of 1557. So there's anywhere from five to 800 years of, of history here in terms of division and verse numbers. But here's the thing you have to know. This is so important. There's no evidence that the inserting of these chapter divisions or the verse numbers was inspired by the Holy Spirit in any way, as the original writings were. So it's entirely possible to look at the Bible and say, the chapter division here is not what it should be, that it's imperfect. And and I believe this is a place where good old Langton got it wrong, because what we're about to cover really connects very deeply with what we just read in chapter 2. Nevertheless, we're going to press on with Paul's argument. Is that okay? Good. So let's look at it. Here's the context. Paul, again, has just finished this long rebuke of the Jews in his audience. And now here come the objections. Maybe you found this uh, true. Whenever you're talking to friends about your faith and you make some very strong statements, theologically or otherwise, about the gospel, oftentimes what comes right back to you is what? Objections. Well, wait, hold on a second. I need a clarification on that. All right. I object to what you just said. So here they come. Now, there is no doubt as we read through the book of Acts and we see the letters that Paul wrote as he was, as he was going through the Greco-Roman world on his missionary travels, he would have run into a ton of Jews who had a whole bunch of objections. So it's very possible the things that we're going to read today are a composite of the types of protests and objections that he got from Jews all over the world. You might recall that it was his habit to go into a city, and where would he go first? Paul. To the synagogue. Why? Because he had a heart for his own people, the Jews, right? He wanted to see his own people be saved. And he also knew by going into the synagogue, he would at least be talking to people that have a working knowledge of the scriptures. And in some cases, he would go to the synagogue, maybe two, three Sabbaths in a row, and he would preach the good news. And a few, in some cases, a few of his countrymen would would receive Christ and be saved. But for the most part, what happened? He was rejected. By his own people. And I'm sure this was a, a source of great, of great sorrow for him. So what he would do after that is if he, if he wasn't getting the reaction that he'd hoped in the synagogue, he would move on and preach to who? The Gentiles. Trusting that God was going to do a sovereign work amongst these, these pagans. And among the Gentiles, we find time after time, Paul reaping a greater harvest than among the Jews. And so as we look at these eight verses, it's logical, as I said, to believe that these are some of the very same objections that he ran into as he was being rejected by his own people. Look at verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the benefit of circumcision? Here's the first objection. Paul, you've said all these terrible things about the Jews, so what's the advantage? Why does it matter that I'm a Jew? Now, Paul's a matter of what we call prolepsis. I'll put the word up on the screen so you understand. This is what we call prolepsis. It's a rhetorical advice, device that was used back, still used today, but was used widely in the first century. In a process of argumentation, a speaker or a writer would raise an objection to his own argument, which seems a little strange, right? Here's my argument. I'm going to raise my own objection to it so that I can sort of anticipate and and beat you to the punch. Before you can raise the objection, I'm going to raise it myself, and I'm going to answer it. Okay, This is a way of strengthening an argument before someone in the audience can stand up and raise a hand and go, whoa, 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 I got a question. He's going to do it before they can do that. So this is something we're going to see Paul use multiple times in the book of Romans. 
So based on what Paul just wrote about the Jews in chapter 2, here's a summary of this first objection that he anticipates from his audience. So wait a minute, Paul. If you're saying that Jews and Gentiles are on equal footing before God when it comes to salvation and judgment, then what is the use of being a Jew? You're telling me that being a descendant of Abraham counts for nothing. That receiving the law of Moses is meaningless. That being the chosen covenant people really has no value. That being circumcised in the flesh meant nothing. So there is no saving advantage whatsoever for me as a Jew. Isn't that right? Think about that. That, that, is, a, that is a serious charge. Because to reduce the Jews to the level of all these other pagan nations could be construed as an accusation that the Old Testament scriptures were false or, or that God had simply failed to fulfill his promise as he had told to Abraham. In fact, it might even see, seem to his Jew, Jewish audience, you know what, maybe I'd be better off as a Gentile because by, by receiving more of these advantages, I'm just opening myself to greater judgment. So perhaps it's better just to be a Gentile. And having read chapter 2, we might expect Paul to say, well, you know what, you're right. There is no real advantage to being a Jew. But that is not what he says. To the contrary, he says what? He says, look, you've misunderstood the argument. That's not what I said at all. There is great advantage to being a Jew. Look in verse 2, he says, great in every respect or much in every way. There's an advantage to being Jewish. First of all, he says, they were entrusted with what? The oracles of God. Now, as a teacher, this is where things get a little bit comical for me because Paul is about to do something that every preacher and teacher has done many times over. Look again at the middle of verse 2. He says, first of all. Now, when you say first of all, what does that usually imply? More things are coming. There's a list of things coming, a second thing and a third thing and a fourth thing. But every preacher and teacher has done this before. Paul never gets around anything else. Nothing else follows in chapter 3. Here's the funny thing. He's going to pick this list up again in chapter 9. So this is the, this is the mind of Paul. And again, he's, it's, it's Paul's personality under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is his mind. He has so, I, I just picture Paul, so many things he wants to say, so many things he wants to communicate that he sort of gets sidetracked here for six chapters. But we'll come back to those things in, in, in the future, Lord willing, and it'll be fantastic. But for now, Paul is just going to focus on this one, first of all, thing that you've been entrusted with the oracles of God. So catch this. You, among all the people living on this spinning planet, have been made trustees of the very words of God. How could that not be an advantage? When God spoke, he did not speak equally to everybody. Do we understand that? And this is where we sometimes have an objection. Well, it, it doesn't feel like the, it's equal or it's fair. There's not an equal playing ground. There isn't. God is sovereign over all things, including salvation. He has spoken specifically to a people. He has not spoken equally to everyone. Unlike the Gentiles, all those people groups around the Israelites, they received natural revelation. And we, we learned recently that God wrote his law in their heart. But the Jews got something very special. They got a unique, special revealing of God to them and to them only. In fact, we see this, scripture, this uh, principle in Scripture in multiple places in Deuteronomy 4. For what nation is there that has a God so near to it 
as is the Lord our God, whenever we call on him. Or what nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? No other nation. Only Israel. Psalm 147. He declares his words to who? To Jacob, to Israel. His statutes and his ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. And as for his ordinances, they have not known them. And look at that statement. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Hmm. So what does Paul mean by these oracles, these special things that that God has has given to a special people? Well, he doesn't use the Greek word graphe, which is the the typical Greek word for scriptures. He uses logia, a different word. And most scholars believe that Paul really has these two things in mind. In In a very general sense, he's thinking about the entire canon of Hebrew scripture. And of course, that's the Torah and the writings and the prophets, right? But more specifically, what he's really focused on here is the promises of God given to Abraham. The promises of the Abrahamic covenant. What promises are we talking about? The promise of of blessing. The promise of, of God saying that, Abram, you'll be a great nation. To have many descendants. A particular piece of land. And of course, as we saw last week, God establishing with Abraham this very specific sign of the covenant, circumcision. But as we learned last week, circumcision by itself is meaningless. It's what circumcision points to that is so important. What does it point to? The promises of God. And these promises are revealed, are received, I mean, by by faith. We saw this in Genesis 15, 6, right? Abram believed God, and it was credited to him as what? As righteousness. These promises are received by faith. So circumcision of the flesh won't save anyone, but circumcision of the heart by the Spirit leads one to trust in the promises of God. So here's the point. Paul says, as a Jew, you've enjoyed the privilege of receiving these oracles, the very word of God that lays out all these Abrahamic promises. And in those oracles are everything that you need to know for faith and obedience and ultimately salvation. Is that not a great advantage? Amen. Let's look at the second objection then in verse 3. What then? This is sort of a follow-up question, right? And and look, when you're sharing your faith with people, oftentimes you'll answer one objection, and then here comes the follow-up, right? What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Okay, prolepsis. Paul's anticipating the next question. So here's basically what's being said here. Hold on, Paul. So you are saying that circumcision has value. That being a Jew is an advantage. Aha, I've got you trapped. Many Jewish people haven't obtained those promises. Many of them haven't been saved. Doesn't that call into question the faithfulness of God? Doesn't that mean that God really is a breaker of his promises? That's a serious accusation against God's character, isn't it? Paul's response in verse 4 is very strong. May it never be. May it never be. B. This is the strongest possible negation response that Paul can give. It's equivalent to absolutely not. Not a chance. Don't even entertain that possibility. The old King James says what? God forbid. God forbid. Serious language. It tells you that Paul is not messing around here. We're going to see him use the same phrase multiple times in the book of Romans. And specifically whenever somebody calls into question the character of God. May it never be. So in verse 4, then, Paul brings two arguments against that idea. The idea that we could conceive of God being unfaithful. Verse 4 says, May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. 
as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So he says, first of all, go ahead and try this. Compare the truthfulness and the faithfulness of God with man. Go ahead. I'll wait. Because you all know people, so you make that comparison. Compare God with man and see what, see what comes out of it. Even if every man on earth proved to be false, God would not be untrue to his glory and to his covenant. It's impossible for God to lie. Unthinkable. It's impossible for God to be unfaithful. Unthinkable. Those very ideas violate the essential attributes of his being. God's judgments are always right. They are always just. And if any human being claims otherwise, mark it down, he is the liar. That's the direction that Paul is going here. And then to finish off his point at the end of verse 4, Paul refers back to the words of a great Jewish hero, King David. Right? If you're going to be, by the way, it's a great practical principle. If you're talking to, to friends who are Jewish, hey, refer to Jewish heroes. Right? How, what, are you going to argue against David? Right? So he goes back to Psalm 51. David says this in Psalm 51. After his, after his sin with Bathsheba, Psalm 51.4, David says, against you, Lord, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Folks, that is a repentant heart. That is someone who's confessing their sin and repenting of their sin. David declares that God has the right to judge him for his sins. And David doesn't claim any special privilege to try to wriggle out of it. He doesn't say, but wait, I'm a Jew. Hold on a second, I'm a descendant of Abraham. I can't be judged. He doesn't say, look, I've received the law or I've, I've been circumcised in the flesh. He doesn't claim his Jewishness as a way to spare him from the discipline and judgment that he deserves because of his sin. Instead, he humbly confesses against you, Lord. Against you, I have sinned and done evil. So this is Paul's point here in verse four. Not only is God faithful to bless his people, Israel, but he's also faithful when he disciplines and judges his people, Israel, when they sin against the covenant. So God can be faithful in blessing for those who trust and obey. He can be faithful in pouring out his wrath upon those who refuse to trust, who go about living their own way apart from his word. But either way, God always remains faithful to his word and to his covenant, always. So the challenge for the Jews who are, who are in Paul's audience here is, is very simple. You've been given a huge advantage as a Jew, the very oracles of God. So what are you going to do with it? It's one thing to receive it. It's another thing to do something with it, to embrace it, to trust it, to live it out. To whom much is given, much is required. Isn't that true? Having, a, having been a part of the covenant brings with it great privileges, but it also comes with great responsibility, is what Paul is saying here. Yes, it's established by grace, and it's received by grace, but it always entails responsibilities. Don't try to pit those two things against each other. It's by grace, but it also comes with responsibility. And when the covenant promise is rejected or neglected or taken for granted or presumed upon, then God is righteous and justified and faithful in pouring out his wrath. That's the big idea, guys, of verses 1 to 4. God is always faithful. Whether he's blessing or whether he's judging, he is always faithful. So let's press on and look at verses 5 through 8. Two more objections. And by the way, these are some of the silly arguments that you might encounter out there in the world as you're talking to people. Really what's happening in verses 5 through 8, the arguments are beginning to devolve, go downhill, and really it's more of a rabbit trail than anything else. 
The objections in 5 through 8 really don't address the main point of what Paul said in chapter 2. They're more of a, a representation of what I would call a depraved mind, a lost person who's just sort of flailing around asking questions. Have you ever done this? You feel like you're, you've got somebody cornered about their life and about their sin, and they just want to flail around and try to make excuses and, and try to get you off track because the bottom line is you're getting a little bit too personal, a little bit too close to home. So this person wants to justify himself and just flat out not deal with his sin. So here comes some sort of crazy questions. This is a person who wants to do the opposite of what King David did, and that is to honestly confess his sin and deal with it and repent. And it's funny, no matter where you go in this world, I don't care if you're in Rome or Ephesus or Santa Clarita, you will find people like this who will want to get you off on some type of rabbit trail, onto things that really don't matter. You start talking about sin and judgment, and they're going to go, woo, look at the squirrel. <laughs> it's true. I've talked, it's happened to me a million times. They want to talk about some you know, nuance about Christianity or some weird extrapolation. You know, you'll be talking about the gospel and, and Jesus, and you're, trying to, you're, you're doing your best you know, to represent God well, and suddenly they go, so what do you think about angels and demons? You're like, what is that? How about the Crusades? What's that about? You know, just weird questions like that. How did Noah get all the animals on the ark? They will try to do this to you to get you off track. It's, it's a... Again, when, and when that happens, know that you're probably getting too personal. You're probably getting too close to their hearts. And lost people will do anything to avoid feeling bad about themselves. And so they'll oftentimes try to change the, uh, the conversation. So, by the way, do you remember when Jesus had the, Jesus, Jesus himself had this problem? Do you guys remember his interaction with the, the Samaritan woman at the well? Same type of situation, right? Samaritan woman's there, and Jesus says, uh, go, call your husband, bring him here. And what does she say? I don't have a husband. What does he say? You're correct, you've had five of them. And the man you're with right now is not your husband. Now, how does she react to that? Does she immediately repent? No, she, she starts talking about, gee, are we supposed to worship here at Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem? Like, squirrel. Right? So it even happened to Jesus, right? So this awkward moment, and she just changes the subject, shifting away from the matter at hand. Well, that's what's sort of happening here, beginning in verse 5. We're going to see some really twisted logic designed to shift the responsibility for sin. Again, most likely Paul had heard these types of things during his missionary travels. Look at verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms, parentheses, right? In other words, this is a a sort of a twisted human way of thinking. Okay, Paul, if God's justice is magnified when people sin, did you hear that? If God's justice or his righteousness is magnified when people sin, is it really right for God to pour out his wrath on the sinner? Hey, look, if my wickedness makes God look better and he's making use of my wickedness, it seems unfair that he would judge me for it. How twisted up is that? I mean, who makes that type of argument, right? Obviously somebody who isn't taking their sin seriously, somebody who isn't interested in in understanding what God's wrath might look like someday. Somebody who would rather rationalize their sin than face it and repent it. And Paul's rejection, again, is swift and strong. Verse 6, may it never be. God forbid it. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? In other words, here's what he's saying. Look, just because God's glory becomes more clear in comparison to man's unrighteousness, that doesn't make your sin any less punishable. 
Did you catch that? Just because God's glory becomes more clear because of how messed up you are, that doesn't make you any less punishable. If he were to excuse away every man's sin because it demonstrated his righteousness, well, then sin wouldn't be judged. Did you catch that? So you guys are all out there sitting like crazy. Well, woo, it's great. Look how beautiful God is then, right? So then you don't get judged. So God couldn't judge anybody then. And then what would we say about God as a just judge? We would say he's a God of injustice because he's not judging sin. Look at verse 7 now. The, the objection continues to devolve. But if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come? Hmm. So Paul, if my lying serves to highlight how truthful God is, I don't see why I should be condemned. That's basically what's being said here. Why? Because you're doing God a favor by sinning? Seriously? Is that really the logic you want to take here? That you're doing God a favor by making him look good because you're a dirty, rotten liar. That's your logic. So by your logic, we should encourage people to sin more or do more evil things so that good might come out of it and that God would receive more glory. Folks, that is a laughable argument. But sadly, it's going to come back several times in the book of Romans. So this must have been a very common thing in Paul's ministry. We get to chapter 6, connected to justification. This is going to come up. We get to chapter 9, in connection with election. This same type of argument is going to come up. And he gives us this really important historical footnote here in verse 8, saying, yeah, this is being reported that we teach this. They're claiming that we teach this ridiculous principle. And he says, frankly, it's slander. Listen, the dumbest thing a man or woman can do is to think that he or she can gain anything by sinning against Almighty God. That is the dumbest thing you could ever think. Oh yeah, I'm doing something really good for God here. It's just a dumb question. The premise is flawed. You can't pit God's grace and God's holiness against one another. And anybody that would go down this line of thinking, that somehow by, by sinning more, by doing more evil things, that grace would abound or God would look better, if they think that way, their condemnation, Paul says, is just. Look at the end, he says there. Their condemnation is, is just. Bottom line is this. Paul's point over and over again here in these verses is that God is beyond questioning when it comes to judgment. He is the creator. As we used to say in, you know, when we play street ball, it's like whoever brought the bat and the ball, it's his game. It's his rules. Right? Mike knows. If you brought the, and it's time to go home, you take your stuff and you go home. That's God. It's his game. He's the rule maker. He's the creator. He's the lawgiver. He's the one who commands. He is the judge. He's also the God of mercy and grace, right? And so he will save whom he will save. And as Paul will say later in Romans 9, ultimately the clay has no right to question the potter. The one thing made has not even a standing to talk back to the one who made it. And that's ultimately going to be Paul's answer. So these are hard verses. Prolepsis. This is Paul uh, you know, anticipating these objections from his audience and, and just sort of getting them out of the way as he continues on with his argument. So the question is, how do we apply it to ourselves here today? Let me suggest two applications for us in the 21st century. Number one, put yourself in the sandals of a, of a first century Jew and see if you can answer Paul's question. Do you have any advantage 
as a Christian in America today. We have a tendency to look at, the, and we should look at historical context. We have a tendency to look at this and say, well, that was, that was for back then. That's for those, those Jews back then. What about us today? Do you have an advantage as a Christian in America? Maybe you've never looked at it this way. But ponder this question. Like the ancient Israelites, are you a part of the privileged religious class in the world today? Follow-up questions, and maybe this will help to clarify it. Did you have the privilege of growing up in the church? Were you regularly exposed to good preaching or at least to gospel principles as you were growing up as a child? Did you have parents who taught you some measure of of biblical truth? Have you experienced the ordinance of baptism? Have you enjoyed a seat at the Lord's communion table? Have you been identified as a member of a local church, been surrounded in worship by other like-minded believers? Do you regularly have ample opportunity to serve the kingdom of God as you serve others? How accessible has the word of God been to you throughout your life? How many Bibles do you have in your home? Has there ever been a time when you couldn't scrape up enough money to purchase a Bible? Has there ever been a time when you couldn't look up a Bible verse on a website or a phone app? Couldn't find a commentary or resource anywhere? These are rhetorical questions, by the way. How many times has your government persecuted you for your faith? Harassed you? Arrested you? Beaten you? Have you ever been prevented from evangelizing a friend or a neighbor? Have you ever been prevented from assembling with your local church? Have you ever been so poor that you didn't have a single dollar to give to the mission of the local church? Have you been given access to God's throne of grace anywhere at any time for worship, prayer, and supplication? Are you following my logic here? Here's the newsflash you and I are greatly privileged. Greatly privileged. What advantage does a Christian have in America? I think Paul would say great in every respect. Access to the word, good teaching everywhere, the privilege of church ordinances, opportunities to serve, church membership, financial resources, freedom of worship. I could go on and on and on. Here's the thing that, the, the sort of the picture I got in my mind yesterday. When we get to heaven, now look, I, I don't know when this is all going to end. I'm not going to set a date or anything. But when we get to heaven and we look at all the generations of believers, will there be any generation of believers who had more resources than us to worship God openly? I don't think so. We are so blessed. Or are we cursed? That's the question. Or is all of this more of a curse because we've, all, we've just decided to be spiritually apathetic about it, take it all for granted? Here's my point, and we'll move on. Remember Paul's words for the privileged Jews in his day? To whom much is given, much is required. With privilege comes responsibility. We saw in chapter 2, God will render to each person according to his deeds. So all of these privileges that we've received, and there are many, are only of value if, if we are daily walking by faith, trusting in the promises of God and the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we're wasting them. We're wasting them. So let us not grow weary or spiritually apathetic like the Jews in Paul's day. Let us not trust in religion. Let us not trust in our traditions. Let us not trust in 
past events or things that happened one day 20 years ago? As I exhorted you last Sunday, let's make sure that our faith is present and active, making the most of every advantage that we've been given by the Lord. He's good, isn't he? Let's not waste it. That's the first thing. The second one is this. And we'll come back to what we talked about at the, at the opening. Are we able to argue well for our faith? How prepared are you to deal with the objections to your faith that come from lost people around you? Friends, families, neighbors, coworkers, whatever. How well prepared are you? Maybe a better question is this. Are you putting enough time and energy into becoming equipped to deal with the objections to your faith? Are you growing in your ability to argue well, as we defined it at the beginning of the message? If not, by the way, I want to let you know that in the fall, our Wednesday night community group, we're going to start an evangelism series, and we're going to go through objections. We're going to talk about how we can overcome some of the objections that are out there. Are you equipped to deal with those things? Are you growing in your ability to argue well? Let me encourage you with this, because I I say this to people all the time. The objections that are out there, there is nothing new. The objections have been around for 2,000 years. They just get recycled from generation to generation. So they can be studied, and they they can be talked through, and they can be rehearsed, and you could actually be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. But it takes work. All the objections that Jesus encountered, that Peter and Paul and John encountered, the objections the early church fathers encountered, the objections of the reformers are the same objections that you will come across when you go to Starbucks and talk to a lost person. They're just recycled. They may look a little bit different, but they're basically the same thing. So the answers are out there. Reasonable, logical answers that will build up your faith and help drive other people to see their need for a savior. Really, all it's about is prioritizing your time and your energy as a, as a people who've been given every spiritual advantage. The question is, are you, are you wasting your time and meaningless stuff on this earth and the time that God has given you? Or are you growing and being equipped to answer objections to your faith? Man, we have ears to hear. You've been given great advantages. Great advantages. Don't waste it. Be equipped to deal with the objections to your faith. Amen? Pray with me, would you?